In these opening verses of 1 Peter, the big fisherman casts a wide net. As we talked about last week, he captured our attention, showing us that we have a living hope. Remember that? And a living trust, reserved, kept in heaven for us, our inheritance. A living salvation, both now and then. And finally, a living proof. The proof that all of this is true is that we have what Peter called a joy inexpressible. And all of this is foundational. Even in times of distress, even in times of sorrow or suffering or testing, do you see what he's doing here? He's anchoring our hope to the foreknowledge of God and and reminding us that we have been supplied with the sanctification of the Spirit. He's mooring our obedience to Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 2. Some profound theological, biblical, and personal truths that he just goes right into in these first nine verses. He doesn't build up to them, no, he uses them to gain our attention and our confidence. He even declares that we have the ongoing sprinkling of Jesus' blood should we become defiled. Of course, there are defilements. This is no pleasure cruise. This life that we're living. Narby storms ahead. Arg. Monsters even, as Peter will point out. But as we've seen, and as I mentioned a moment ago, the theme of this letter is sharing the sufferings of Christ. So keep that in mind. Because what he's doing is giving us a briefing on how to come into a commonality with how Jesus suffered. Jesus, in His life, shows us how to walk on stormy seas and not be rattled. He shows us how to stand even in fiery ordeals, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Because the shadow of death is always before us. It's always around us as we're living in this age. There is always the shadow of death, as described in Psalm 23. And yet for the follower of Jesus, green pastures are there, quiet waters and full tables. And so Peter writes of, as we talked about last week, suffering and salvation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. That's the first part, and we already covered that. And then picking up in verse 10 through the rest of chapter 1, what we will look at tonight, suffering in the Scriptures. How does the Bible feed into this and and talk about our suffering and, and give us confidence in our suffering? And that's verses 10 through 25 of chapter 1. Then chapters 2, 3, and 4, sharing the sufferings of, of the Savior. The sufferings of Jesus Himself. And, and we get into that in those chapters. And then finally in chapter 5, what we could call suffering and the second coming, which I could break down further because it includes suffering and the shepherds in the first four verses of chapter 5. And then suffering unto strength. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 5. And finally, he ends with salutations. Verses 12, 13, and 14 at the close of the book. But tonight, again, suffering and the Scriptures. Let's think this through together. Picking up again at verse 10, because that's really where the second part gets underway. Peter, after describing our salvation and laying in this amazing foundation, this this strong uh, level ground on which we stand, says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Note it. 
to follow there is an interesting Greek phrase, and it's one I'm just going to give you a heads up you're going to hear a lot when we get into the book of Revelation. The phrase is metatauta. The glory is to follow. The glory is metatauta, which literally is translated after these things. Remember the mountains that we concluded with last week. The two mountains. The prophets would stand this side of the Mount of Suffering, and beyond it, they could see the peak of the Mount of Glory, and they prophesied of both, both of these things. What they could not see was the age in between, the valley. The suffering, yes, the glory is to follow, but, but the in-between, that's what the prophets didn't understand. That's what Paul comes along and says, look, now I declare this to you. Well, what they didn't see, what they didn't know, what they couldn't possibly understand, that there would be a season, a long season, an age between the sufferings of the Savior in His first coming and the glories of His second coming. And so the mountains, Moriah, the mount of His suffering. And beyond it, all of it, the mount of His glory, in between the Kidron Valley. And again, I'm just using this as a picture, which we compare to the valley of the shadow of death. But being in this valley, what Peter's getting at here is you see something, I see something that none of the prophets could see. See, if you were to stand in Jerusalem today, if you were to stand on the west side of Mount Moriah, you would see Mount Moriah, and then you could see the Mount of Olives between. You could not see the Kadron Valley unless you're up looking down into it, or you're in the valley itself. In the same way, the prophets were back a bit. They couldn't see what we see. We're in the valley. We can look back and see Mount Moriah. We can look ahead and see Mount of Olives. We can see the suffering behind us. We can see the glories before us. We see all of this because of our perspective in the valley. And we see what the prophets can't see. And we see what even the angels want to see. Which is marvelous to me. When we studied Hebrews, you know, we talked about angels a little bit. And oftentimes we think of them as superior beings. No, they are created beings like you, like me. Just because I can fly... Okay, they got the flight down. That's nice. You'll be able to one day, I'm sure, as well. But we compare ourselves. The reality is you know things angels don't know. Paul even goes so far as to say, you're going to judge the angels. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But we see something. We experience something. Verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, things into which angels long to look. Now, what Peter has just said in verse 12 is vitally important. If you didn't know this, look at it. He has just clarified to us the clear source of the Scriptures. Note this. The Gospel was preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's where the Bible comes from. That's where the Scriptures come from. That's the source of the Scriptures. The Spirit of Christ. In which he says in verse 11, or in verse 12, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Same Spirit. Same Spirit. You might know it also over there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He clarifies this further. He says, we have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this first of all, however, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And apparently, just as the Gospel was unknown to mankind until it was spoken by God, it was not even known beforehand by the angels. They longed to look into it. And they are looking into it. And considering it and thinking it through. That word, look, we've seen recently, it's parakupto, and it's literally translated to stoop down and inspect. To get real close. And and to to understand, to draw near to. And this is the posture of angels regarding the Gospel. Someone mentions the Gospel, the angels are like, what? I want to see that. I want to understand that. I want to know what this is. And as Paul previously taught us, it's that divine education that goes way beyond humanity. You know, we're concerned with learning ourselves. We want the knowledge of the Word of God. We want revelation. We want understanding. And then we go out into the world and we want to tell people about it. But the reality is it is bigger than mankind. Ephesians 3.10, remember Paul said that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So the angels, think about this. They watched, no doubt, with fury and frustration. They watched the sufferings of Jesus. They knew who He was. They knew He had come to save They did not understand. They're watching this. This cannot possibly be the plan. Jesus said, I could have called 12 legions of angels. And I imagine there were 12 legions of angels all armored up, ready to go, saying, now, now, send us now. And He never called. Of course, then they rejoiced at His resurrection. Oh, I see. Now, now something's starting to click. It's starting to make sense. They attended His ascension. Remember they were standing there and the apostles were looking up at the sky with their mouths hanging open and the angel said, what are you doing? What are you looking at the sky? He's going to come back same way you saw him go. Don't just stand here. Do something. <laughs> and I think, I think, and I can't prove this, but I think the angels are peering into the Scriptures. I think they're looking at the Word. I think they're just trying to put it all together and see what the Bible says about all these things, especially what Peter calls in chapter 5, verse 1, the glory to be revealed. Is First Peter an end times letter? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, through the letter, Peter's going to re- refer to the second coming explicitly. I mean, he'll imply it in different places, but explicitly he'll talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He'll call it His coming glory. He refers to it as His visitation and His appearing six times in five chapters. Chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says it again. Chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 1. And chapter 5, verse 4. Again and again, Peter returns to the coming of Jesus. He's standing in the valley of the shadow of death. And he's not looking back as much as he's looking forward. And there's a reason for that. We'll get to it in just a minute. But we can see what Peter sees. The looming glory of the Mount of Olives. The looming glory of the Mount of of glory. First time I went to Israel, we sat on the Mount of Olives and we looked across at the Temple Mount, and to me it was a stunning view. Wow, there it is. There it is. And I just wanted to sit there all day long. A few trips in, I think it was third or fourth time, we actually walked across the Kidron Valley, down into the valley and up. And my perspective changed. 
I remember standing in the valley looking up not at the Temple Mount behind me, but at the Mount of Olives before me and recognizing this as the place of Jesus' return and being blown away. In that day, Zechariah 14, verse 4, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. I remember thinking that verse and going, Man, He's going to be right there. His feet will stand there. It's in front of Jerusalem on the east. Zechariah says, And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. He's coming. He's coming. And Peter returns to this again and again. The return of Jesus Christ. Now, angels long to look. The prophets didn't understand. The things that we see that we can know. What's really tragic is when Christians bump around in the valley and never look up. Some Christians spend all their time focusing on the sufferings behind. Others wander around busy picking up garbage in the valley, trying to clean out the cadrone, looking at flowers, not paying attention to where we're headed, where we're going. But there are a few, there are some, who have eyes on the Mount of Glory. There's something to that, gang. I am completely opposed to those who say, wow, you know what? You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You're so focused on the revelation and all your prophecy stuff and all the coming of Jesus stuff, you're not doing any good in the world. And I say, oh no, no, it's the opposite. The more heavenly minded you are, the more focused you are on the coming of Jesus, the more motivated you are to serve and love and live for Jesus in this world. So here in the valley, look up, look up. What Peter now does for the rest of the book is he's going to start pulling us along. In fact, you're going to come across several, seven therefores. Seven therefores in the letter, and each therefore is driving us forward to the next. It's almost like tides in the sea pulling us across into deeper waters of grace and truth. Therefore, verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober. In spirit is added by the translators there. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds, he says first. Therefore, prepare... What what do you mean therefore? Well, remember you always, when you see a therefore, go back to see what it's there for. And that's why I've taken this time to introduce, to go back and think about last week and these verses, verses 1 through 12. He lays this great foundation. He builds the ship, if you will. And then we push off into sea. Therefore, with this confidence, with this assurance, with this knowledge and understanding and even revelation of the glories to come, therefore, he says, prepare your minds. Or literally, it's just one word. It's anazonumi. And it means gird up. Gird up. In fact, there in verse 13, there's just three words. Prepare your minds is gird up. Second one is sober up. And the third one is fix your hope. Three words. Gird up. We don't use the phrase gird up. Sounds a little weird. You know, Uh, we might say hike up your shorts, but that might sound weird too. Really, technically, it was to gird up was to hike up your robe. Because wearing robes in that time, in the first century, if you were going to run somewhere, you couldn't have robes hanging down around your ankles, you'd trip. So you'd have a a sash or a belt, and you'd take the lower part of the robe and you'd wrap it into the belt so your robe was only hanging down to your knees. Now you can run. Now you can fight. Now you can move. Now you're ready to do something. And that's the word that Peter chooses here. Gird up. 
In our language, we would say, roll up your sleeves. Or, if you're a sailor, stow the mizzen mast. Batten down the hatches. Get ready to run the waves. Gird up, therefore. And then he says, sober up. The Greek word there, keep sober, is just one word, nepho. And nepho means to remain in the condition of clear-headed sobriety. We might say colloquially, keep sharp. You know, gird up, sober up. First verse I thought of when I read that. Keep sober. Ephesians 5.18 Listen, we've talked about this verse many times. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Now when Paul said that, you know what? He wasn't laying out a prohibition against alcohol. What he was doing was giving an exhortation to alertness. He was giving that example. that the drinking of wine, a glass or two or three in, tends to numb the senses and slow the thinking and depress the mentality. It eases everything down. And, and Paul said, what are you doing? Sober up! Keep sharp! How, how can you gird, what can you do with a drunken sailor? early in the morning. I mean, you don't, you don't gird up and then end up stoned because then all that girding up is useless. The preparation means nothing. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and, same word, sober. Be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, since we are of the day, let us be sober. 1 Timothy 4, 5, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Paul says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Be sober. It is amazing to me how hard the spirits have worked in our culture to make soberness a bad thing. Hey, so sober. He's sober all the time. It's like you're a bummer if you're sober. He's the designated driver. And it's because he's never any fun anyway. You know? Hey, soberness is sharpness. It's clear thinking. Does anyone want to be a dullard? Do you want to be in conversation to be the person going, I don't know what I'm doing here. Sober up! Think of kind of a humorous moment right at the beginning of the church. It's back in Acts chapter 2 where it says that others were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine. People are amazed. The Holy Spirit had just been given, poured out. The apostles are are speaking in this miracle. They're worshiping and praising God, and everybody hears them in their own languages, which to my mind means it's more of a miracle of hearing than it is of speaking. They're just praising God. But everyone showing up around there was hearing this worship service in their own native tongue and it's blowing their minds and some were fascinated and others are saying they're drunk. They're just filled with sweet wine. Peter's wonderful response. Peter taking his stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words for these men are not drunk as you suppose. Now remember, Peter is a fisherman. So he adds, for it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if it was seven or eight in the evening, maybe they'd be drunk. But they're not, he says. 
And then he says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Understand this. It was vital for the people gathered around there and witnessing this amazing moment. Vital for them to know and understand this was no intoxicated, irrational, uncontrollable thing. And the world needs to know that from Christians. This faith, this worship, this fellowship that you're involved in, this is not some emotional, irrational thing. This is not some kind of cultish drunkenness. This is reasonable. This is thought through. This is sober-minded. This is clear-headed. In fact, it's more clear-thinking to be in the Word of God than to be in any other book on the planet. More clear-thinking to be around Christians discussing the truth of God's Word than any other conversation. More clear-thinking to talk about Jesus than it is to be out in the world being all erudite and educated and professorial. Sober up. Gird up. And Peter specifically says here, suffering, related to suffering, man, don't drown it in drunkenness. You know what the most important thing to do is if you're suffering? Sober up. Be sharp thinking. Well, humankind says, wow, if I'm hurting, I don't want to hurt, so I drink or I sober down, you know? I want to numb the pain. God says, well, you could do that and you could be filled with wine, but it's dissipation, which basically means it evaporates, or you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, who answers suffering, meets you in it, and, and deals with it. So Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Or 1 Peter 5, 8, he says again, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, which is why I said, I said there are monsters out there. And you're not going to battle them unless you gird up and sober up. And what is the best way to do this? Number three, hope up. Hope up. What do you mean? Look at verse 13 again. Hope up. Prepare your minds for action. Gird up. Keep sober in spirit. Sober up. And fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope up. Now every Wednesday morning in staff meeting, we get nuggets. You know, I'm doing the teaching that evening, and so I'll throw out one verse. And sometimes I'll throw out one verse and just share a little bit about it. Other times I'll throw out a verse and I'll say, what do you guys think this means? Sometimes what they share with me, I learn and I bring it to you on Wednesday night and take credit for it. But we talk about these things, and this was the verse for this morning. And Cam was the one who said, who noticed first, she said, it's interesting it says the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace to be brought to you. I thought I already had grace. I thought when I trusted in Jesus... By grace I was saved through faith, and this not of myself, it's the gift of myself, it's the gift of God, so that no man may boast, right? Isn't that what Peter said? So I got grace. Of course, then if you think about it, the sprinkling of his blood against defilement means I continue to have grace throughout my life. 
But guess what Peter adds? He's coming with grace. Just in case you don't think there's enough, he's got more. And he is bringing it with him. He's bringing grace, just in case you need it. Now what's silly is, and the point that Peter's making here from a Jewish mind, what he's making is, he's drawing a picture. Jewish thinking is very picturesque. Hebrew language, very, very uh, metaphorical and allegorical. They love to talk in word pictures. And the word picture of this moment is grace is huge. Deeper than an ocean. You got it when you were saved. You have it through your life. There's more as Jesus is coming. There is more grace than you could ever possibly need. John says there's so much grace it could save everybody from the beginning of history to the end of history if they would just trust in Jesus. More grace than we could possibly imagine. And Peter even here says, and he's bringing with him the grace at his revelation. That's just great. And it's, by the way, fuel to talk to any Christian who's wallowing in guilt. And sometimes you come across that. Maybe it has been you. When you look around and say, I can see other people saved by His grace, but I just don't... I've had a bad week, you know? Well, that's okay. He's bringing more. He's got more to cover you. You're going to be okay in Jesus. Trust Him for the grace. Because He's coming. He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. I love talking about His coming. I think you know that. I love the book of Revelation. I am so pumped that September we're going to open that book and start to walk through it. I am just psyched. Lord willing. You know. And the saints don't rise. And if we are caught up before September, fantastic. We don't need it. But if we're still here, we will be in the book of Revelation. And I love the book, my favorite book in all the Scriptures. The culmination of all the Scriptures. You know why I love it so much? Because I realized the first time I went through it, I mean really studied it through, what the book of Revelation does is it wakes us up from stupor. It it girds up, it sobers up, and it fixes hope upward. It's again that picture of standing in the valley and looking up at the Mount of Olives and saying, He's coming. He is coming. And the revelation of Jesus and what is to come, it girds up, sobers up, and hopes up even in our suffering. Even when life is hard or disappointing or discouraging. Even when our life is distressing. Man, Jesus is coming. Which is a really hard thing to say with a frown on your face. Jesus is coming. Guess He's going to come. Nobody says it that way. Jesus is coming. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is coming. Are you, as Paul told Titus, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus? That's our calling. To be looking. So gird up. Sober up. Hope up. Verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Peter's not calling them down. He's not saying the Gentiles were, were stupid or foolish. He's saying they didn't know. They truly didn't know. How many of us didn't know? We were in our ignorance before we came to Christ. How many friends of yours are in their ignorance? 
How many families? Just they, just they don't know. And I've shared with you before, the best way to look at a non-believing person, no matter how vile they may come across, no matter how anti-Jesus they may seem, is to look at them as those who don't know. They just don't know. Because if they knew, they, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. If they really knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be opposed to Him. And thereby opposed to you. If they knew. That's why Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. They were in their ignorance. He says, don't be conformed to those former lusts. That, that was, those were the days you didn't know. But, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we come to the balance of grace. And please get this. I talk about grace a lot. I do. Because I believe so much in the grace of God. And that it is our salvation. But mark this. Grace is never licensed for us just to do whatever we want. Grace is not licensed to ignore the commands of God. Or to dismiss the Scriptures. Or the calling of Jesus that is on all our lives. And that calling is, as Peter reiterates, Be holy, for I am holy, God says. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, where the Lord said, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Now, until Peter wrote this down, we could dismiss this and say, well, that was just for Israel. Not anymore. Not since 62 or 63 A.D. when Peter made it clear, no, this is for us. This is for all God's people. Be holy because I am holy. Leviticus 11.45 For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. What does he mean? What is he saying to Israel? The Lord was saying separate yourselves. Come away from the nations. Don't be like the peoples. You be like me. You be holy because I'm holy. This is not holiness as in purity or piety. It's holiness as in being set apart and distinct and unique and even peculiar. I know some of you are saying, well, I got that one. (laughs) To be a peculiar people unto God. Separated for Him. Set apart for Him. That's holiness. And by the way, this is not a new commandment. But as Israel learned, suffering separates. Suffering does that in our lives. It separates us out. It makes us distinctive. It develops holiness in a person and in a people. And the hope of Messiah for Israel was a strong motivation. And so they suffered, but they held on with that hope of looking for Messiah to come. You know, we have a stronger motivation now. We're not just hoping Messiah will come the first time. We know He has. We're now hoping He's coming the second time. Hope up. And so in our suffering, we see He came and suffered. He understands. In our suffering, though, we see He's coming again in glory. We're looking ahead. And so to be holy, we've got a different motivation. Our motivation is secured by the cross and drawn forward by the second coming. I am motivated to holiness. We need to talk about this more in the church. 
And we as Christians need to consider what holiness, true holiness really looks like. Because it means being different than the world, not like the world. Not sliding into the character traits of the world. Doing what the world does. Thinking how the world thinks. Watching what the world watches. Behaving as the world behaves. Going back to Egypt. God says, be holy. Why, Lord? Because I'm holy. I want you with me. I want you set apart in my presence. And it's so important to God that He uses suffering to get us there. Suffering doesn't happen and God goes, oh wow, that one got by me. No, He uses suffering because He knows it produces holiness. And it does. Look again at the history of Israel. Has their suffering not set Israel apart? Is not the Jewish person, the Jewish people, the most set apart group of people in the world? And they who have suffered the most, suffering sets us apart. But now, now in our lives and in the church, suffering continues to work holiness, both in the immediacy of Jesus and in the imminency. And that's the big difference for the church. See, Israel hoped for the imminency of Messiah, that He would come and come soon. We hope for the same thing, but with the hope of His imminency, we have the immediacy of Christ in us. Here and now, today. i got to thank Rachel, because the song choices tonight nailed me. And they do a lot. Worship gets me. I was in a place this afternoon. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I will. I got home... This afternoon, I normally get home a little bit earlier on Wednesdays, so I have some time. I can see my kids and help with driving, getting people where they need to be, and, and then be back here to teach on Wednesday nights. Well, I got home, and the kids were all gone. The house was empty. It's like crickets, you know. And I'm walking around the house, and I texted Cheryl, when do I need to? I need to pick up the kids at 5.30. So from 3 to 5.30, I was just like, I got nothing to do. And it was the weirdest feeling, because I, I, and I, don't, I think maybe because I was tired, I don't know, but my heart started to feel isolated. I felt alone. I don't like... I like when the house is quiet, but I love the energy. And, and I love my kids. And I love my wife. And I love walking in the door and, hey, Dad's on you know, And every... Nobody was there. Just utter silence. And I sat on the couch and I played Angry Birds for a few minutes. And I had some food. And, and I was driving to church tonight. And I said, Lord, I just... I'm feeling kind of isolated. (laughs) And he's like, really? Where do you think I've been all afternoon? (laughs) And it kind of hit me right there. I was like, you know, thank you, Jesus, that you are always with us. And then we come in here, and what, what... First, you know, Rachel does Abide With Me, which is the song she knows kills me. Shot to the heart, you know, and you're to blame. But every single song, I don't know if you noticed this, every song was about His presence. Every song was about His abiding presence. The immediacy of Jesus. I was just blown away. I'm like, God, You just answered my cry. You just answered my... And I know it was only an afternoon, so forgive me for being superficial here, but I mean, it was just a little afternoon of feeling a little lonely and a little isolated, and God reminded me big time... I am immediately present with you. I am right here. Christ in you, Paul says. The hope of glory. The immediacy and the imminency. We have both. That works to holiness. 
That works to holiness. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Hope up unto holiness. Be holy because I am holy. The presence of Christ and the coming of Christ makes us holy. Sets us apart. He says in verse 17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself yourselves in fear during the time of your stay that is on earth. Knowing, he says, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What do you fear? That's an interesting thing for him to say there in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear. What are we supposed to fear, Peter? I'll tell you what we should fear. God's impartiality. We ought to fear that. Jake and I had a conversation about this today. That when it comes to sin, you know, sin is sin. We have levels of sin. We have depths of sin. We have certain sins that are more abhorrent to us culturally as well as spiritually than other sins. But you know what you ought to fear? God's impartiality. In other words, God sees it all the same. From the little white lie to the adultery, God sees it all the same. From the drunkenness to the, the, the theft of a piece of candy. I mean, you know, it's It's sin. Sin is sin. God is impartial. And Peter's pushing a point here. Again, he says, hey, if you call God your Father, who said, be holy because I am holy, conduct yourself in fear. Because your Father will make no distinctions between your failures and someone else's, your sins and someone else's. However, he goes right after that into knowing this. Fear the impartiality, but but know this, you are not redeemed with perishable things. And then he begins to speak of the blood of Christ. So this is amazing. On the one hand, know God is impartial, and that ought to stir a little fear in us. But on the other hand, we have the full value of Christ's redemption by His blood. That answers the first. On the one hand, God judges with absolute objectivity. You can't get away with anything. You're not going to slide something by Him. He's impartial. But on the other hand, the precious spotless blood of Christ is our claim to innocence. You know, because of the blood of Christ, you can, as the Hebrew pastor said, draw near to the throne, come into His presence, look God in the eye, declaring your innocence... Maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. Maybe you had a good day or a good week. But to stand before the perfect holy God and declare, I am innocent, Lord. Really? Why? Blood of Christ. 
I am covered by the blood of Jesus and that is my innocence. Again, the Hebrew pastor says in chapter 9, verse 13 of Hebrews, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I'm innocent. By the precious Blood, the redeeming blood, the unblemished, spotless blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. By the way, they is you. We sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So be holy. Be holy. There's some great little bullet points here so far. Gird up, sober up, hope up, be holy. Why? Because of all that He's laid out before us. And because we will suffer. And we are going to go into times of suffering. Be holy. You were made holy by Jesus. You were purified. You were made innocent. You were made spotless by His precious blood. And verse 20 tells us, For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And Peter is connecting here again the divinity of Christ with the divinity of the Father. See, you're in Christ, therefore you're in God. Your faith is in Christ, therefore your faith is in God. And I love, he points out again, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The implication isn't just that God knew Jesus. Of course he was foreknown. You know, being one with the Father through all eternity, of course God knew Jesus. That's not what Peter's saying. What he's saying here is not just that Jesus was pre-existent, but that the Gospel was already fully mapped out. He was foreknown. The plan was set. The die was cast before this world. Before anything began. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And it's what John writes in Revelation 13.9. He describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Gospel was not plan B. The Gospel was laid in from the very beginning. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Pause there for a moment. Jesus put it this way. He said, John 14, 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. What Peter has just said here is that all of this obedience to the truth, all of this purification, all of it is produced by and produces love. Love is the source of obedience. That was, that's what Jesus is talking about when He says, If you love Me, you're going to keep My commandments. Of course you will. If you love someone, you do for them. That's just what you do. Love produces obedience. Obedience to the truth is proof of love. And love is the expression of a soul before God. And that's why you know the story, why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest law? He said, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Matthew 22.37 And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. It all is birthed from love. All the commandments, all the laws, all the rules, all the requirements, all the obedience, the holiness, it comes from the source of a heart that loves Jesus. You pursue loving Christ, and I absolutely believe this, the commandments will take care of themselves. You make loving Jesus primary in your life, you're going to keep His Word. You love people, and you're going to find yourself serving just like Jesus. But know what Peter says here. I've always loved this verse because it's a progressive verse, not politically. But it's a verse that progresses from one kind of love to another. Where love is concerned, it must always be progressing. Love is always growing or it's dying. It's always going forward. It's always moving. And in this case, note this again, he says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. you got to go further. There's soul love. Love of the brethren. Love you, bro. That's Philadelphia. And that's the word that's used right there where he says, sincere love of the brethren is just Philadelphia. You've got Philadelphia, Peter says. Got that down. That's great. But you've got to go further. You've got to get from soul love into heart love, spirit love, which is fervently loving from the heart. Know what that word is? Anyone want to guess? Agape. Go from Philadelphia to agapao, literally. From brotherly love, love you bro, to unconditionally love, I love you no matter what you do. I love you whether or not you love me back. I love you even if you should cause me to suffer. Think about the suffering that we have caused Jesus. Has it ever caused Him to stop loving? He loves a kapao unconditionally. Peter says that's, that's the progression of love, moving from one to the other. This is another lesson that Peter absolutely learned. And shares again. It stuck with him. Again, on the beach of the Galilee. When Jesus was talking to Peter. We've been over this several times in the last few weeks. It keeps coming up. When they had finished breakfast, John 21.15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I Philadelphia you. I love you, man. I like you a lot. And Jesus said, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Unconditionally love me. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I really like you. Philadelphia. And he said, well, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, marvelously, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you Philadelphia me? (laughs) Do you love me like a brother? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you Philadelphia me? I think what grieved Peter was the shift from agape to Philadelphia. And now Jesus has backed it down a notch and it grieved Peter because he realized he was not loving Jesus, had not loved Jesus unconditionally. Remember, he had betrayed him. 
Peter said, Lord, You know all things, and You know that I love You like a brother. And Jesus said to him, Tend My sheep. And I believe Peter stewed on this and processed this. As we talked about Sunday in Peter's life and ministry and discipleship, he grew into, he progressed in his love. He finally understands such that now in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22, he describes it. He says, we gotta move from Philadelphia into the city of Agape. Out of brotherly love and into the unconditional. He gets it and now he is passing along what the risen Christ taught him. That godly love must progress. You know, that's something for us to think about. Especially as you mature in faith in Jesus Christ, that we as a family, as a fellowship, we progress. That we learn how to move beyond brotherly love and into agape. Which means we love each other regardless. We're going to stand with each other regardless. We're going to be here for each other unconditionally agape love. That was Jesus' new commandment, by the way. Remember when he said, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, if he had stopped there, it wouldn't be a new commandment because God already commanded that. It's already commanded in the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, as Jesus had said before, love God and love people. So the commandment to love was not a new commandment. What was new was Jesus went on and said, even as I have loved you, that was new. Now he's saying, I command you not just to love brotherly love, but to agape love. Love the way I loved. John 15.9, he repeats it. He says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then John 15.12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Maybe you hear that and you think, oh, if only, if only I could learn to love that way. You know what? None of us could. None of us even had the capacity to full-on agape love before. But now, verse 23, for you have been born again. You've been born again. There's been a change that's taken place in you. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Note that to be born again is now to be born into an eternal state, which means now you can love unconditionally, without end. Until you were born again, there was always going to be a limit on your love. A limit to how far you can go. Even the most loving non-believing person in the world, the most compassionate, the most caring, is going to hit the wall and die and the love stops. Can't go so far. Cannot love unconditionally. And I think it's even more than that. I, I Honestly, I believe if you don't have Jesus, you don't fully comprehend or understand unconditional love. You can't. You can't love like Jesus unless you're in a relationship with Jesus and unless, as Peter says, you have been born again. Bible students note this. Born again is used four times in the Bible. That phrase. Just four times. You'd think as much as we talk about being born again, it'd be a lot more than that. Just four times. John quotes Jesus using it twice. And then Peter, in this letter, uses it twice. And that's all we get. 
Peter passes this on. John passes this on. Both John and Peter were present to hear Jesus talking about being born again. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, John 3, 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. There's the first two times. And then the second two, Peter affirms it twice. He already did back in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Peter ties into that at the very beginning of this letter, and now he repeats it, saying, hey, you need to unconditionally love because you've been born again. You now can love that way. You can love agape love because you've been born again. Born again. That is what enables us to do everything we've talked about tonight. It's because you've been born again that you can gird up and be ready. It's because you've been born again that you can sober up. Man, because you've been born again, you have hope. You can hope up. And it's because we've been born again that we can be holy. But now, it's your born againness that causes you, enables you to love unconditionally. It's marvelous. Born again. Born again is a Holy Spirit work. It's a work that the Spirit does. But you know what? It remains in us by the imperishable seed of the Word that is ever enduring. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Or as Isaiah said, Isaiah 55 verse 10, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will My Word be which goes forth from My mouth. It will not return to Me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know what that means? Brothers and sisters, if you want to increase in faith, if you want to grow in love, if you want to share even in the sufferings of Jesus, get the Word in you. Because the more the Word is in you, God promised He's not going to come back empty. As His Word comes into me, it does what He sent it forth to do. His Word can't not do what He sent it to do. It cannot fail. The failure is not taken in the Word. The failure, you've heard me say in the church today, is not preaching the Word, and not teaching the Word, and not having Bibles open to the Word, and people studying and pouring over the Word. The more the Word is in me, the more it changes everything my outlook and my understanding and my confidence and my compassion, yes, and my love for God and for other people, this Word bears and sprouts and furnishes more seed, bread to the eater. This is what the Word of God does. And combined with the Holy Spirit, I mean, man, that's the one-two punch. Word of God in me, the Spirit watering and cultivating that Word so that it bears spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the Word, the Word even draws me out of Philadelphia and into agape. The Word does that. By example, by teaching, by training, by discipleship, I become able to unconditionally love out of brotherly love. And my friends, flesh can't do that. 
flesh can't die. And now I know non-Christians would be offended by me saying that. A non-believer would say, how dare you say I can't love unconditionally? I dare. I dare not because I'm better because I'm a follower of Jesus, but because something has been opened to me that I was un- incapable of doing before. I could not love unconditionally before I was born again. And I truly believe that. I, you know, I think people can love a lot. They can be kind. They can be good. But the kind of agapao love, the God love that we're talking about, got to be born again. And when you are, this imperishable seed comes in. Flesh can't accomplish that. Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Isaiah 40, verse 6. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. This is what Peter is tapping here. Reading again off of the the teachings of Isaiah. Let me read it to you. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. In all its loveliness, it's like the flower of the field. Grass withers, flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And that's why I say flesh cannot accomplish agape. Because flesh fades. Flesh is temporary. Flesh dies. Only that which is eternal can truly express agape. The love of God. Now, listen. We've outlined verses 10 through 25 here in chapter 1 as suffering and the scriptures. But have you noticed that though I have, Peter has not mentioned suffering a single time in these verses? There's no mention of suffering here. Well, how can you say it's suffering and the scriptures? In fact, I'll go one further. Peter won't even use the word suffering until halfway into chapter 2. Now you had the insight because we jumped ahead on Sunday and talked about the suffering, sharing the sufferings of Christ, which is the theme of the whole letter. So we already knew before we got there, we know that that's the backdrop here. Why do we call this? Why call this suffering and the Scriptures if he's not talking about suffering? Because listen, the seed of the Word empowers us for suffering should it come and it is empowered by suffering. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. As Isaiah wrote, Peter affirms the Word is potent. Man, the, the Word of God stays with us in the valley, gets embedded in us. And when the Word is in me, it comforts and it strengthens in suffering. Something my mother-in-law does. If you've gotten a card from Sharon, you know. She's card lady. She just loves to send out cards. She sends out hundreds of cards in a month. On on a daily basis. I I know because I see the mail going out. And and there are anywhere from a stack of five to ten cards almost every single day. This is what Sharon does her ministry. She gets so excited when she hears a scripture that she can put in one of her cards. She's always looking for a scripture to pop in a card. You know, she'll come up to me after a Sunday morning, you know, and we've been, we've been talking about some amazing, deep, rich thing, and, and my mind's buzzing with that, and she'll pick out one verse that really wasn't the point. 
Well, this is the, what you said this morning was the greatest thing. What I say, and I want to hear, you know, back the feedback. And, you know, what, what I said. And she's like, this verse. And I'm like, that wasn't even in my notes. <laughs> you know what? It's the power of the word. It is potent. And what she has recognized in, in all of her card ministry is when people are suffering, they need the word. If she can put a verse in, there is something remarkably comforting and encouraging about the Word of God when we're hurting, when we're suffering. The Word strengthens us. It comforts us. But, get this, not only does it comfort us and strengthen us in suffering, but it is confirmed and strengthened in us by suffering. As we go through trials and distresses and hard times, man, this gets stronger. That's the potency of the Word of God. This gets more profound. And I find you would think it's the opposite in our flesh. Man, if I'm suffering, I just can't believe that. The only reason people say, I can't trust God because of my suffering is because they haven't read His Word. But if you are in His Word and going through it, the Word is confirmed. Share the sufferings of Christ with the Word in hand. With the Word in heart. Because as the Word gets in, it gets stronger and stronger by and for sufferings. Now I want to give you one last thing and we're done tonight. One more thing because this kind of ties into the Word and it's the first three verses of chapter 2. Therefore, the second of seven therefores, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Doesn't that seem to fly in the face of what the Hebrew pastor taught about maturity? Is this a contradiction to what we have read recently, read and and studied before, about what it means to be a a mature follower of Jesus Christ? Listen to what the Hebrew pastor says. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature because who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Did Peter not read the letter? I mean, because now Peter comes along and goes, Oh, long for the pure milk of the word. What's the deal here? I love what Peter says. And this is so valuable. Listen. Just because I come to enjoy a good steak doesn't mean I've given up on dairy. To my thinking, dairy equals happiness. Things made with dairy, ice cream, whipped cream. I I could go on. Dairy. Thick, rich, whole milk. Whoever had meat and cookies? Does that sound nasty? Biting into a steak and then a tasty chocolate chip cookie and washing it down with some more steak. Anybody pick up a, a gallon of cookies and ground chuck ice cream? Just because you feed on the meat and you're nourished by meat doesn't mean there's not a place for milk. Some of us remember the old ad campaign from the 80s. Milk, it does a body good. 
Remember that? It does. In the same way that bones get weak and brittle without calcium, understand this. So the framework of our witness as a church depends on the milk that Peter's talking about. What do you mean? Don't confuse Hebrews and 1 Peter. They are not standing in contradiction. In fact, the context for each one is completely different. In Hebrews, milk is used to portray infancy and immaturity. Peter uses milk here to express not immaturity and infancy, but innocence and spiritual health. And both are true. In fact, Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. Where evil is concerned, drink milk and drink up. Where biblical maturity is concerned, cook up the steak. We need both. We need the innocence. Listen, it's innocence that puts aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Innocence does that. Innocence doesn't want to know those things. Doesn't want to see those things. Doesn't want to be involved with those things. Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander are behaviors that are bred by the sin nature. They're fleshly. So what Peter is saying here is where evil is concerned, be babies. Be innocent. Be milk drinkers. Long for the pure milk of the Word, especially, especially if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, which I know he's referring to Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not the milk of human kindness. That's the milk of divine kindness. And that's the kind of milk of the Word that is worth longing for. The milk of the Word that makes innocent as well as the meat of the Word that makes mature. Grow in your faith and maturity with the meat. Drink the pure milk for innocence. And as we do, as we do, the enduring Word of God continues to build us up to strengthen the framework of the bones of the body so that we become a spiritual house. And that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word to us tonight. I pray, Lord, that it will encourage, that it will strengthen, that it will confirm our faith. I ask also, Lord, that if anyone here tonight is in a time of sorrow or suffering, that the Word would be even stronger. That the Word would be itself strengthened. That Your truth would be more Obvious and clear and understood. Father, clearly Your Spirit was speaking through Peter to tell the people it's time to get ready because some tough times are coming. Time to be sober and alert and to gird up and, and to have our hope on the things set before us, the glory to be revealed after these things. Well, Lord, I, I sense that we sit here at the end of the age and we may yet see Sufferings before us. We may yet see distresses and hard times before you call us home. But even should we not, Lord, I pray for our preparation. 
I pray for our hope. I pray for holiness in our body. I pray, Lord, that You will cause us to be innocent and pure and set apart until You call us home. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and worship together.